Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. They're still counting in Pennsylvania, Dave. As expected, right? An election that would carry on. So uh, I think that uh, we got that one right. I think we missed many states, but uh, that it would be close uh, was was uh, right on right on the mark with the closeness of it all. And uh, war and peace has been going well. That uh, was my <laughs> recommendation. Yeah. So. Yeah, you know, it's it's good. You can get through a couple hundred pages a day. You know, <laughs> although it's difficult for me because the constant refresh, right? Sure. Do they have any new numbers? What's the latest? Yeah. What's the, what's the map showing? And once you start getting into the House and the Senate, you know, you can just go down that rabbit hole forever. So yeah. Ready made for statistical junkies, right? Exactly. All these yes. numbers on the screens. Yeah, exactly. Right. The former math major in me comes out pretty ferociously this time of year. Well, let's get right to the headlines. So as we're speaking, which is about 645 Eastern on Friday, Biden has pulled ahead in Pennsylvania and Georgia, has retained his lead in Arizona and Nevada. And Trump is ahead in Alaska, who's decided to just kind of take a break for a while and counting, even though it's a two to one edge for Trump. So we're not calling that yet. And then North Carolina, which is also taking a break for a few days. Those two look solidly in Trump's favor. If things go as they are now, the final number would be 306, 232 which would ironically be the exact reverse of what it was in 2016. Now, we're going to start by focusing on the statement that President Trump made last night. If you saw that about 15 minutes before the press, the three main themes in President Trump's statement last night, number one, the overall success of Republicans, the fact that the House, actually Republicans were picking up seats, Senate gone better than expected. Looks like maybe a net loss of one pending the results of Georgia. And then also the fact that you had the largest share of non-white vote of any Republican since 1960. So these are some of the things he highlighted last night. Um, Secondly, he talked about what I think it's fair to describe as election interference. He, He mentioned historic interference by big media, big money, and big tech and said the pollsters got it knowingly wrong, that there was no blue wall, that the whole point of this was to suppress Republican vote. And he specifically called out Quinnipiac and Washington Post polls for being very badly off the mark. And then the third branch of his comments last night, and the one that's certainly been most commented upon, were his complaints about election integrity. He opened his remarks by saying, if you count the legal votes, I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. He went on to talk about uh, dishonesty that he was alleging with mail-in ballots in Philadelphia and Detroit in particular, complained a lot about people not being allowed to observe or there being limitations on who could observe counting and then thereby raising questions about the integrity of that process. He, he closed with an overall statement about his, his philosophy of this, and I think that's worth playing. So here's the president about 15 minutes into his remarks. I challenge Joe and every Democrat to clarify that they only want legal votes because they talk about votes, and I think they should use the word legal, legal votes. We want every legal vote counted, and I want every legal vote counted. 
What do you think of, of where things are at this point, Dave? Well, the election hasn't been called yet. And, and that's, it's interesting because it, it doesn't feel like there's a winner. I mean, even if it was called for Vice President Joe Biden this evening, it wouldn't feel like there's a winner. Uh, I think the expectation uh, from, from many uh, Democrats was that this would be a landslide victory. There would be a blue wave. And not only has there not been a blue wave, there have been uh, significant blue losses uh, in the House, uh, a Senate that was not captured. But, but overall, a, a feeling that there's been some rejection of a kind of hyper-progressive plan for the future. And I think that shocks a lot uh, of those individuals who uh, are very moved by a uh, progressive sense of justice. And I, I think they're just, and you saw this in, in many an article in response to the election that how can it be that 50% of the American people you know, don't believe in what I believe? And, and even with Donald Trump as president, uh, we're willing to cast 70 million votes for him. So I, I just get that sense that it just doesn't feel like there's a winner to this election. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit more and look at some of the Republican successes. So the House, we've already heard a lot about the Democrats in the House who had a conference call last night that was supposed to be just for people that were in the house and lots of leaking was going on. It looked like four or five media outlets were getting everything leaked to them in real time. And there was an attempt to put a cap on that, but it was unsuccessful. A lot of, a lot of frustration with the socialism language and uh, says, no, no one talk about defunding the police ever again. No one say socialism ever again. And really looking at what had happened to a number of the new freshman members that had come in in 2018 in the big Democratic wins that year that were going right back out the door just just two years later. And then, as we've already mentioned, on the Senate side, a real strong prospect that Republicans hold the Senate, obviously, with those two elections remaining in Atlanta, the runoff elections. We'll see what the final result is those campaigns will probably break all the records that were set this campaign. You think about the possibility of control of the Senate and all that that would mean for the progressive agenda. If Republicans are able to at least take one of those Senate seats, which seems quite probable, then that really will limit Joe Biden's agenda. And you think about the fact that at that point, Lisa Murkowski or Susan Collins become really the, the key senators, Right? If you can bring them over on the Democratic side, then you can get a majority. And if you can't, you can't. And what's interesting, of course, Collins was just reelected for her sixth term. Uh, how much does she need to work with Democrats? Does she need to play the centrist? Uh, I mean, she is a centrist probably by nature, but, but some of that is, is political calculation. And there may not be much political calculation needed at this point. In your sixth term, how many more terms does she plan to serve? And having just gone through this cycle with six more years ahead of her to re repair relationships if she damages them in the near term. And then Lisa Murkowski, interesting, uh, you know, centrist, having positioned herself that way in a, in a pretty deep red state. So if anything, she'll need to tack to the right. She's not going to want to go too far away from the Republican mainstream. She knows what it's like to be challenged in the primary and lose 2010. Remember she lost to the Tea Party challenger up there and then kept her seat by winning a write-in campaign, an amazing achievement, but do you want to count on that twice? Uh, probably not. So I don't think you're going to find that Murkowski and Collins are especially pliable if you're a progressive who thinks 
maybe we can flip Republicans on some key issues from time to time and have an effective majority, even if there's more than 50 Republicans. I would say this, if, 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 if I'm a Democrat, the two things that make me most happy after Tuesday, Georgia and Arizona, uh, the you know, Western push from California uh, into uh, Arizona, uh, into Colorado, um, has kind of cemented in, in a way, cement may be too strong of a word, uh, that Southwest part of the country um, this trending. Silly putty. Exactly. There's, there's something going on there. And then I think Georgia also is, uh, it's, it's now a state uh, in the Sun Belt uh, that could go either way. So that, that's the, the good news. The, the bad news at a macro level is Florida. I think that um, what happened in Florida was dramatic. Um, what happened in Florida kind of speaks to these uh, numbers that uh, President Trump mentioned about um, uh, more Latino men and women uh, voting uh, Republican, uh, more African-American men and women voting Republican, and more white uh, suburban women uh, voting uh, Republican in the election. So uh, the, the Florida model uh, may be the key uh, to uh, the new Republican uh, Party, at least it, it, how it presents itself in, in a very close state. So, uh, so but still, no, no clear winner out of this election from, from my accounting. Yeah. The other dimension of this I wanted to mention, which we haven't touched on yet, was what happened at the state level. Uh, because there too, you had some surprising Republican success, gained a governorship. So it was 27 Republican governors now. And even more importantly, as we go into redistricting, obviously a census year, every 10 years, then you have a new allocation of members of the House and the new districts drawn based on that new allocation. You did not lose any state legislative bodies, despite really strong efforts, lots of money going into the effort to flip some of these purplish states in order to try to get control of that process. Republicans kept every legislative body they had going in, and it looks like they're going to get both of them in New Hampshire on top of that. And so the result of that, you know, some, some redistricting is done by commissions in certain states. And then, of course, some states you have Democrats in control of one branch of the legislature, Republicans in control of the other. But, but there are 181 districts where Republicans have complete control over that districting plan, and only 76 for Democrats. So that's a big advantage that will be critical for the next decade. I mean, only every 10 years do you have a chance to do this redistricting. And of course, you recall that in 2010, you had that major, major Republican victory in the aftermath of the Obamacare debate, historic gains for Republicans in the House particularly, and that set them up as the down-ballot state-level results of that as well for success really throughout the decade. It's been a very good decade historically for Republicans in the House, and now you're set up for another good decade based upon the results of this time around. So that, that was a really important but maybe less noted result from the elections on Tuesday. One question maybe worth thinking about just a little bit, you know, we've talked about winners and losers. What do you make of President Trump's performance? Uh, given these Republican successes, is there a case to be made that perhaps he underperformed? Well, I gave him a D last week on, on his campaign. And the reason why is because I, I argued that there were things that he needn't have said that uh, might have made a difference in this election. Do you have to go after John McCain in, in Arizona? Uh, is that a smart thing to do in a state where uh, he's just uh, passed away and was popular among um, many people in that state? 
can you never even let a victory kind of stand still without kind of a jab that comes after it? So the, these are things that, I mean, I, I, I think a lot of Republicans uh, who would have wanted him to win were upset that uh, he just couldn't stop himself at, at times. And, I, you know, I, I think that he received, what, five million more votes than, than last time. I, I, I definitely think that he could have received five million more votes than that had he kind of held up in certain situations, held his tongue in certain situations, not tweeted in certain situations, and, um, and just been more humble uh, overall. I, I think there were some many good points that, that uh, were made in the Republican National Convention uh, that had they continued to kind of be played out over the next eight to 10 weeks uh, would have led to a very different result. Now, now that said, the energy that is present that he's brought to the picture, the the changing of the party so that it's oriented more now to the working class voter, uh, the prospects that the the prospect that the Republican Party now has to be in, a, in an important position to define political equality over the next decade or generation that's been brought on by this shift. I think those are very positive trends that uh, can be tied in part to President Trump paying attention uh, to those constituencies, whereas other Republican uh, administrations and campaigns had not uh, in the past. So uh, a mixed bag, uh, certainly uh, had he not been as energetic as he is on some issues, he may have lost some of that vote, but I, I still think he had enough to uh, to get him a couple million more votes and to, to win him his election had, had he been more reticent to voice. Yeah, the, the Arizona one is the one that stands out to me, right? The, the unnecessary attacks on John McCain to the point that his widow endorses Joe Biden, right? I mean, if, if you just lay off, she might vote for Joe Biden, but there's no need for her to publicly endorse Joe Biden except that he makes it personal. And if we're talking about a difference by the end of this of 10,000 votes, you don't think there's 10,000 people that might have been moved by her endorsement? I mean, that seems easy. So, yeah, I think you're right. There's, there's some lessons there. But there's also some lessons, as you've been saying, for the conservative movement as, as it has understood itself going back to Reagan and uh, that Reagan coalition. There's, there's some new things that President Trump has done that have been positive developments for the Republican Party that they can build on. And I think the question is, you know, how much of that is going to be able to be built upon with somebody else. You know, is, is this a, a Trump coalition or is this a new Republican coalition? We'll see how things move forward from here as, as new leadership perhaps emerges in the aftermath of this election. Yeah, it was funny. I spoke with my in-laws uh, who live in Arlington, Massachusetts, north of Boston, who are big um, or big uh, fans of President Obama, uh, of course, supporters of, of Joe Biden. They were still tense, right, uh, last night. And yeah. one thing I, I, I mentioned to them is, well, you know, even even with Trump, um, the the margin of victory was small. Imagine if moving forward, there was someone who kind of hits upon uh, Trump's talking points, yet does so winsomely, right? How how the electorate with a winsome Trump, you know, m- what what that might look like, and I think that kind of brought a scare to them, like because they they kind of see it's hard not to see that he is um, in places, you know, touching the right chords. Interesting. Is there a winsome Trump out there? Is that is that Tom Cotton? I wonder. Tom Cotton, I think, thinks he's perhaps the heir, at least uh, to some of the issues and maybe has the temperament that's, that's different. 
are there others out there that, that fashion themselves? I think Marco Rubio would like to be that person, but I'm not sure he can quite pull off the transition from 2016. But we don't need to talk about 2024 just yet. <laughs> just yet. That's we'll right. Say that for another week or two before we launch into that. So the second issue that was discussed, and we want to develop this more since we talked about this some last week too, was the role of what the president called big media, big money, and big tech. And the big media piece, we can go a lot of different directions with that, but I want to, I want to zero in on the polling because we spent some time on this last time and we looked at the polls, the pollsters, the kind of overall strategies based on 2016, should we have confidence in the polls, 2020? And obviously everybody's initial reaction is, boy, they blew it again. And the argument that President Trump made was that they knowingly got it wrong, that they were intentionally essentially push polling, right? The old technique where you use a poll not to actually get a sense of what people think, but to try to influence opinion. If you look at the numbers, and we've run the numbers, looked at all 101 polls that were published in the last week before the election, state level, national level polls, all the ones that were on Real Clear Politics list of polls, and you've got 13 pollsters in that last week who published polls in at least three battleground states. So they're, they're polling at least a number of different places. And we looked at this nice little spreadsheet, looked at two measures, the, the average error. So how far are they off from the final numbers where they stand, at least at the moment, and their average absolute error. And so the idea is, you know, you might be minus two on Biden in one poll, you might be plus two on Biden in another. And those would, of course, average out. Right, minus two plus two, the sum is zero. So your average error is zero, but you're still two points off each time. And so your absolute average error, absolute value of negative two is two, the other one's two also. And so your average absolute error is two. So why are we looking at this? Well, because here's a few things that we're supposed to know about polls. If polls are doing an honest, accurate sample, there's two things that should happen. Number one, if they're doing your typical thousand person poll, which is the usual number, they should 95% of the time land within three points of the actual number, right? That's, that's the whole idea of a margin of error. Plus or minus three points, that's a 95% confidence interval. That means there are some outliers. There will occasionally be a good poll that's just wrong. You just happen to get the wrong people, the wrong night. One time in 20, that should happen. You should be outside that boundary. But the rest of the time, you should be within that three-point spread. That's the basic idea. It's, it's, it can get more complicated with the uh, modeling that goes into that, but that's, that's the basic idea. And that's, that's why they do those thousand-person surveys because you, you run the math on that and the margin of error comes in around three points. Okay, so you ought to be close. The other thing that should happen is you should, if you're doing an honest sample, you should land sometimes on one side and sometimes on the other. Sometimes you should have a little bit too high for Biden. Sometimes you should be a little bit too low for Biden. We wouldn't expect if you're doing eight or nine polls that every one of those polls, if you've got a good random sample, would always overestimate the vote percentage of Joe Biden or of Donald Trump. If that's happening, there's, there's something wrong, right? There, there's some systemic problem in the way you're doing the sampling because if you're doing good random sampling, you're going to be off this way, that way. That's the whole point of the randomness, right? It should be within a certain range, a nice bell curve that should describe the overall results. 
so that's why we're looking at these two, these two measures in particular. And so we looked at these 13 pollsters. And what's interesting, maybe most striking about all this, is how many of them had multiple polls that were outside that plus or minus 3% range. So in this case, we're looking at the spread between Biden and Trump. And so if that spreads more than six points, then they're outside that plus or minus three range. And how many had the exact same average and absolute error? In other words, meaning every single one of their polls landed on the same side. And guess what? There were seven of the 13 pollsters, all seven of them, that side was the Biden side. There wasn't a single pollster who favored Trump in every poll. Even those that, when you look at the list, are, are noted to be Republican-aligned pollsters. Even those Republican-aligned pollsters had some polls where they had Biden too high and Biden too low, Trump too high and Trump too low. So I know you're waiting in, in great suspense to find out, well, who was the worst of all these? And we've already mentioned them because President Trump singled them out. It was undoubtedly Quinnipiac. So they had four state level polls and a national poll. Average error, 8.4 points at the time we're recording. All five polls had more than a six point spread. So that should happen one time in 20. Somehow they managed to hit it five out of five. Embarrassing. Right. Embarrassing. And, and this is Quinnipiac, who at least touts themselves as the gold standard. They call themselves the gold standard for polling on their own website. The Federalists had a little bit of fun with them, emailed them the other day to ask if their pollster was planning to resign. And the reply was, well, it's going to take a while. Uh, a full examination of what went wrong with polls this year is going to take a while. At the moment, I still need to see the final election results and final exit poll results. Without those, I'm not able to make even preliminary hypotheses about what exactly the issues are. So it took six months last time. Thinks it might even take longer this time. And hopefully by that point, we'll all have forgotten about how, how bad the polls were and Quinnipiac going back doing its thing and cited by key media outlets and all the rest. Also on the not so good list, CNN, four state level polls, National poll, average error over seven points, four of the five, more than six points off. New York Times, Siena and Reuters, probably in a tie for third place. Bad as well, average error, almost six points in both cases. New York Times had Biden up 11 in Wisconsin and three in Florida. Not exactly the way it turned out. And Reuters had Biden up both uh, 10 in both Michigan and Wisconsin. And four of their seven polls were more than six points out. We can keep going, but basically what do, you, what do you see here? You see the legacy media and this university that had a terrible, terrible time, and they all just happened to land on the same side. Now, President Trump says they're dishonest. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. The other option is they're systemically biased, but those are really the only two options. Highly unlikely that you would have this many pollsters all landing on the same side with the same type of error, large errors. Any way you look at this, there's good grounds to think there's either systemic bias in their sampling method or just plain old dishonesty in how they're reporting or getting the results. Well, I think the problem is how the numbers 
fit into the rest of the narrative uh, from these left of center media uh, outlets. That uh, everything that President Trump is doing is unpopular, that there really is no embrace uh, for what he stands for, what he's arguing, et cetera. And look, the polls bear this out. Right? The, the numbers right now, a glance at, at where things are right now show that it's not just a talking head saying that this is the case, but we have actual numbers that prove that this is the case. And if those numbers weren't there, it would undermine the narrative that went along with those numbers. That, does that make sense, Matt? So that, that, that's where right. you, know, you see the, a great problem with it. And it's good to remember that polling is not just every four years come presidential election time. We have regular polls on the approval rating, for example, of the president that are used to construct this, just the kind of narratives that you're describing. Oh, President Trump, unpopular, and his numbers went down by two points. And it's interesting that on that measure in particular, President Trump was always underwater almost in his entire presidency in terms of his approval rating. But there was one pollster, if you remember Rasmussen, that would consistently have him around 50%, was, was typically three, four, sometimes five points higher than the others. And so now let's, let's turn to those pollsters who did well. And uh, we lead off actually with the one we featured last time, Trafalgar. So if you heard us last time, we talked about the approach Trafalgar took and how they had success in 2016, basically on the assumption that people don't like to answer polls, so make them short, and they don't like to be judged by pollsters, so make them anonymous. And those are the two things that they kind of baked into their formula, and there were some other proprietary things and obviously some more details to that, but those were the two things that they, they featured and focused on as, as their comparative advantage, as it were, that explained their success in 2016. And here we go again. They, they pulled nine of the 12 battleground states. Average error was just 1.3 points in Trump's direction. The other ones, all the errors were in the Biden direction. And their average absolute error was 2.2. Was They've had polls on both sides. They had some polls where they overestimated Biden's support. Again, some where they underestimated that. And overall error, just 2.2 points. So that's that's about what you would expect, right? If, if you've got a, a decent sample, those are the kind of numbers you should land with. You're not going to get it exactly right. You may shade things one way a little bit or the other, but to have an average overall error of 2.2 points, it looks like the kind of results that, that a good solid pollster would get. Nothing spectacular necessarily, but it, it's a good solid result. And there were several others that did likewise, uh, did well. Insider Advantage had five state level polls, and their average error was less than a quarter of a point. So their errors on both sides almost canceled out. And their absolute average error was about 2.7 points. So not quite as accurate as Trafalgar in terms of average, but very, very strong performance. Susquehanna did three state-level polls. And then Rasmussen, which I just mentioned, five state-level polls and also a good performance in both of these measures. So these are all for either Republican pollsters or you might say Republican leaning type of pollsters. And they all did quite well. And, and we can expect that there's something in the way that they're sampling that reflects reality better than these legacy, legacy media institutions. None of these is a famous polling outfit except uh, Rasmussen perhaps, but we can see, I think, some lessons here. Look, at some point, 
there's going to have to be some accountability for this. The New York Times can't just keep getting away with being bad at polling. And Quinnipiac can't just keep getting away with being bad at polling. And, you know, they can have a blue ribbon panel and try to figure out why they got it wrong again. But there's going to have to be some accountability. And I think this, this is starting to happen. This is, I think, one of the things that has happened in consequence of this election. We've talked about this a little bit before, that some of these institutions that have been presented to us as as the opinion makers and these kind of institutions that everyone has to listen to, they've lost some credibility. And they've lost credibility in a variety of ways, but I think this is just one more way as, as this sinks in, as this story develops and goes further down this road, we're gonna have to have second thoughts about just how much stock we put in polls. And of course, it'll get even harder probably for pollsters <laughs> to get Republicans to agree to be polled. Well, I think back to what you thought would be the corrective for, say, Twitter abusing uh, its, you know, censoring posts or news stories that it didn't like. You know, in that case, the New York Post did what? It just didn't, you know, try to recover their Twitter account. And, you know, if enough individuals get off of Twitter and, and begin to use a new platform, then that's going to hurt Twitter's market share. And in this case of the pollsters, you know, your reputation is only as good as your word and or your numbers in this case. And but you're just going to have people who have just been turned off by polls, so they won't even respond to any polls at all. So I, I think I think this is going to be one of the lasting legacies of this election that some of these institutions went all in to get Trump, and looks like they may have gotten him, but they may have gotten him at the expense of their own integrity and their own reputation, and they may have gotten him in a way that actually doesn't really accomplish much for the progressive agenda. If, if you have a 52-48 Republican majority in the, in the Senate, and in two years, you get even a small movement in the direction of Republicans in the House, so Republicans take the House, then you're not going to have done much toward the, the grand progressive vision. You're going to have burned your, your legacy and your integrity and your reputation and not have a lot to show for it. One other thing that I'd add to that, Matt, the problems that we're facing as a society in November of 2020 with coronavirus still around, uh, with the winter coming, with the damage done to the economy, those problems don't go away. And now, all right, here's the ball. Here's, here's the authority. You take it, see what you can do with it. And not to say that anyone could be up to all of these challenges, but that's a kind of a really difficult predicament to be in where you won an election, but it doesn't feel like you won the election. And now you have responsibility in the middle of a very difficult time for the country. So let's look at the third branch of this as we begin to tie this up a bit, the election integrity piece. And we've already talked about this along the way. But we did a whole show on this several weeks ago. And unfortunately, a lot of the things that we were concerned about then are the kinds of things that seem to be raising themselves again. What really should have happened was states should have set up rules for mail-in ballots that make legal voting easy and fraud hard. You mail them to those who request them. You have reasonable signature checks. You don't allow harvesting. Some of these techniques that we know encourage fraud and encourage people putting pressure on individuals in nursing homes or these kinds of things. It's just not, not appropriate. And there's ways to prevent that by setting up the rules in a certain way. And there's, and there's ways to signal that that's okay. And that we're encouraging that by setting up the rules in a different way. And then the other thing, which we didn't talk about, but which uh, Andy McCarthy has been 
writing a lot about it in National Review, the Supreme Court could have really helped if three weeks before the election, they had made a ruling that it affirmed the basic principle of the Constitution, that it's the state legislatures that set the rules for elections, and that therefore state executive branches couldn't change those rules. Of course, there's a a role of kind of filling in the details that can be appropriate for an election board within the boundaries of a duly passed law, but not changing the details of that law. And certainly judges shouldn't be doing that. And so had they made that clear, that would have, I think, as McCarthy has suggested, that would have signaled to federal judges, state judges, and to state election commissions, this is what you can and cannot do. And some of the litigation that we're going to have to have now, when the result hangs in the balance in ways that are known, it would have been much better to avoid that by pre-litigating these issues where we don't know the result, right? It's always better to set the rules before the election, as it turns out, than it is to try to figure them out after the fact. And this is one of those places where the Supreme Court, they couldn't get four justices to be willing to take the case. And unfortunately, that was an opportunity, I think, missed, as, as McCarthy points out, that could have really smoothed the waters here so that it would have been very clear what kind of legal challenges would be well-received and what kind of legal challenges would be inappropriate. And then some of these issues that we're still wrestling with, well, what about what happens in Pennsylvania with these ballots that come in after election day? Do we count those? Do we not count those? Those questions would have been resolved, again, before we had a single ballot counted and therefore before we knew what the margin was gonna be one way or another for either candidate. All right, so they didn't do this. We, we didn't get the rules settled in advance and not every state made rules that would make legal voting easy and fraud difficult. So we're, we're where we are regardless of what would have been wisdom beforehand. What, what do we do now? How, how, what's the best way to resolve this, Dave, in a way that at least encourages confidence in the results and encourages a peaceful transfer of power if that's what's gonna result or some recognition that no, actually despite what looks like a win for Joe Biden, Donald Trump is actually the duly reelected president. Well, I think like in all things, you, you try as much as possible to follow the standard that's in place. So in this case with the recounts, if there are triggers such as a you know a 0.5 percent uh, margin uh, or, or less margin of victory, uh, that seems to be the case right now in Pennsylvania, albeit they're 96 percent in. So there's 19,500 vote differential there, 0.3 percent. Uh, you know, make sure those votes are counted um, at, and counted correctly. Uh, same thing in, in Georgia, uh, 4,000 margin of victory for the Biden campaign currently, 0.08 percent. Still some votes to be counted there, but uh, those triggers, I, I think in those states, uh, Pennsylvania, Georgia, uh, Wisconsin's 20,000 vote margin right now, and perhaps even Arizona, depending upon how uh, that goes in, in the next uh, 24 hours, uh, that, that should just be uh, the starting point. Um, you know, make sure in those places where it uh, was close, uh, that those ballots were legal ballots and that um, uh, Joe Biden uh, won that race fair and square and and ought to assume the presidency. Uh, but I, and I think beyond that, I think that um, there, if there are cases of fraud, it's a good thing to kind of see where they are, um, cast a light upon them, and, um, 
and and really kind of make the case against that type of fraud because we don't we can go down a road where 2022 2024 and so on just become further abuses of election integrity or we can try to correct them because at the end of the day if you win or lose but you've you've done so in a fair election that's just that's how things should be right and we know one of the things we don't need to do is to tack up another election where at least some substantial portion of the population claims it was stolen indefinitely. You know, you go back, I did a little bit of research on this. Hillary Clinton is still claiming, as far as I can find, that the 2016 election was stolen from her. She's used that language multiple times. Uh, 2000 election is widely regarded as having been stolen from Al Gore. And even 2004, the win where Bush uh, beat Kerry because of uh, his victory in Ohio, there was some close scrutiny of what happened in Ohio, and there were some official Democratic commissions and such that said, no, it wasn't fraud, it was a legitimate whim. But there's still many politicians that still talk in that language. So you're talking about, of the last six elections, you're talking about three that are currently disputed. We don't want to add this to the fourth. And then what's the narrative, right? Unless somebody just wins some overwhelming victory, we just don't have any confidence in, in our election institutions. And you now people use these words and sometimes it's a, it's a game, right? People talk about coups. Well, do you really mean a coup? Uh, elections stolen. Do you really mean stolen? But, you know, if we debase that language enough for long enough and we start to internalize the idea that pretty much every election is a coup, or every election is stolen, we're, we're not gonna hold on to our overall rule of law and our Republican institutions. That, that we, we can't go down that pathway and always have a substantial portion of the population convinced that the president is illegitimate, not just the wrong person for the office, but illegitimate, fundamentally should not be there, and that there's something went wrong that, that should have stopped them from holding that office. So I really hope that we're gonna be able to get to a point where most Republicans, maybe not Donald Trump himself, <laughs> but most Republicans will be able to say, yep, tough loss, but legitimate loss if that's what it turns out to be. Let's now transition to our required reading. We're, we're gonna continue on our lengthy novels, at least for a few more days, Dave, but what do you wanna to add to the reading list this week? I figured it might be apt, uh, this language of uh, a coup and all the rest, to, to turn to uh, someone who has famously written about uh, coups and conspiracies and all the rest, and that's uh, Machiavelli in his uh, Discourses on Livy, uh, Book 3, Chapter 6, has a long chapter uh, in which he talks about uh, conspiracy as a, a means to uh, political change and uh, for the most part uh, is, is very uh, hesitant to endorse conspiracies because conspiracies are, are so difficult um, to pull off. Uh, he says at some point in the, in the chapter in um, referencing the Roman Cornelius Tacitus that men should honor the past and obey the present and whilst they should desire good princes, they should bear with those they have such as they are. And surely whoever acts otherwise will generally involve himself and his country in ruin. So uh, conspiracy talk, uh, the talk of coup is not necessarily something that bodes well either for the conspirator or the country uh, that, or, that you're trying to um, secure. So point one. Uh, point two uh, is that um, 
conspiracies can either be made against a country uh, or a prince. Uh, he says, in the first instance, uh, when they're aimed against a sovereign, uh, and you look at the causes that provoke them, uh, there are many of them, uh, though one is more important than all the rest, namely the sovereign being hated uh, by the mass of the people. For when a prince has drawn upon himself universal hatred, it is reasonable to suppose that there are some particular individuals whom he has injured more than others and who therefore desire to revenge themselves. themselves. This desire is increased by seeing the prince held in general aversion. A prince then should avoid incurring such universal hatred. And as I have spoken elsewhere of the way to do this, I will say no more about it here. If the prince, this was in the prince, will avoid this general hatred, the particular wrongs to individuals will prove less dangerous to him, partly because men rarely attach sufficient importance to any wrong done them to expose themselves to great danger for the sake of avenging it. And partly because even if they were so disposed and had the power to attempt it, they would be restrained by the general affection for the prince. I think that line and thought in particular uh, is apt uh, for this election. Um, I, I think that uh, many individuals believed that there was a general aversion to Donald Trump, uh, the person, uh, and hence uh, many, many believed that uh, maybe not through a conspiracy, but, but things in which um, uh, kind of rules are skewed a little bit that, um, that um, it would all work out well in the end, uh, given how unpopular uh, Donald Trump is. And that certainly at least uh, three days after the election doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, they had a sovereign, they had a sovereign who had created some enmity or hatred among the people, but also a great amount of love. What say you, Matt? Yeah, well, I think that's right. And so maybe that's a point in their favor that they believed their own polls. <laughs> so maybe it wasn't a, a dishonest error after all but they seem to trust that simply stating the fact, Donald Trump and putting the picture up there would, would be enough to invoke the mass hatred of the American people. And there certainly was plenty of that, but it turned out to be not quite as popular a cause as they imagined. And I think you know, there was a, a piece written in the week that talked about the consequences of all this for progressives and one of the points that he made was that they just got to deal with the fact that there are a lot of people in this country that just don't agree with them. And what's, what's self-evident to them is just not self-evident to the rest of that population. And that, and that group's not going anywhere. Uh, they're going to keep voting and they're going to keep living their lives. And as always, you know, you look at the map of geographically where the red states are and and you look at the county level, it's a massive amount of area right, where, where supporters of Donald Trump were to be found, were the majority. And so, you know, you can, you can think, well, yeah, but all the real good things, important things happen on the East Coast and the West Coast and a few other cities in between. That, that's fine. But, but recognize that you're in a big country and there's a lot of territory there where apparently Donald Trump is not only not hated, but he's actually energetically embraced. Yeah, this is a, another interesting point on just that point, Matt, um, that, that Machiavelli makes in, in this chapter on conspiracies. Of course, he, he references the most famous conspiracy of all time, which is the conspiracy of the Roman nobles stirred up by Brutus and Cassius against a Caesar himself. And, and we see how that turns out in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, when we see how it turns out in history as well. 
uh, for those conspirators. The hope here, right, uh, Machiavelli says, is that uh, in a true desire to liberate your country uh, from the tyranny you think it's been subjected to uh, by the prince, uh, that the people will welcome you and your conspiracy in open arms. And I don't think that that is the case in a country that is divided evenly 50-50 or something close to that, that you don't have that kind of universal monolithic people can't stand Trump, people can't stand his brand of conservatism, and, and they're going to uh, cast it aside forevermore. That's just, that's not where we are as a country. Right. And I think, again, going back to the point that I was making earlier, some of the institutions that put their credibility on the line and worked hard to try to ensure that President Trump wouldn't succeed and obviously had in view not just four years of Joe Biden as president, but a whole list of policy changes that would go along with that and national changes that might follow. I mean, you know, really big things on the, the list of items. And it looks like none of that's going to happen. And so this is just the experience of, of Brutus, right? You know, you, you're hoping the people embrace you and Next thing you know, you find you're in the middle of a civil war. And what did you get after all? You got dead Caesar, but you didn't really save the Republic. So that's, I think, the kind of experience that some of these institutions are going to have. They, they burnt a lot of their credibility and their political capital in order to try to defeat President Trump. And they're not going to have a lot to show for it in the end. Which is the last part of this chapter that uh, I'd like to bring to everyone's attention. And those that's the perils of, of, of um, having a conspiracy uh, that does not achieve the goal, that does not in, achieve the overthrow of the thing that um, you want to overcome. Uh, Machiavelli says uh, that one of the three dangers to which conspiracies are exposed include uh, the individual runs no risk before the execution of his plot, so before it's seen, for as no one possesses a secret, there's no danger of his purpose coming to the ears of the prince. But any individual of whatever condition may form such a plot, be he great or small, noble or plebeian, familiar or not familiar with the prince, for everyone is permitted on occasions to speak to the prince and has thus the opportunity of satisfying his vengeance. But he'll go on here to say that once the prince knows uh, that you're plotting against him, or once the prince's people know that you're plotting against them, uh, then uh, the, the game is somewhat up because you can't, um, you can't try the same plot or you can't try the same conspiracy again. And I think this has been a lot of our uh, conversation and our coverage you know, of these polls. Uh, it, it, you know, to the degree they are conspiratorial, to the degree they do show some systemic bias, uh, it, there's an alignment here with what Machiavelli is seeing that does not bode well you know, if this was your, your big shot to, to do this. Yeah, we'll see what the, the long-term impact of that is. But I, I really do think that there's going to be some lines drawn here and some of these legacy institutions are going to reach that tipping point where they're, they're just not going to be respected voices by a large part of the population. All right, well, let's open the grade book. We thought we might have a little bit of fun this time. Maybe it's, <laughs> it's too soon, but we're going to talk about some potential post-presidency options for Donald Trump. And we're going to have the caveat, this could be January 21 or January 25. So we're not prejudging the question of when he's going to take these options up. But here's some thoughts 
we're going to grade about things he could do post post presidency. So first one, there's already rumors about this or stories being written about this. Back to TV, lots of discussion. He wants to start a rival news network to Fox News. And after the Arizona debacle, I think all the more reason to believe he might do something like that. What, would, what grade would you give that, Dave, as a, as a post-presidency option for President Trump? So are you grading what, what, uh, whether we tune into such a station or whether <laughs> we think it'd be uh, an amazing coup for, for the president? Um, I, I think if he did this, if there was some sort of Trump you know, news, uh, he would have... Clearly, it would be called Trump news. Of course, well, anything is exactly <laughs> right. That, that makes sense, right? So, but... Um, it, I think it would automatically have, you know, 30 million viewers, you know, uh, it's, it's first day on the air. And I, I, I mean, I think you could very well, you know, challenge a um, uh, Fox news and um, which would be interesting. Whether I'd watch the Trump news station <laughs> would be another thing, but I think that it'd be a successful endeavor. So let me give it an A as an idea. Okay. Yeah. I, I think, I think it's the most likely thing for him to do. Would it be good for his soul? Would it be good for the nation? <laughs> I'm not sure that that's the case. But yeah, I mean, if, if you want to get Trump back to providing entertainment value and that, that kind of be his major contribution to the broader culture, this is probably the way to go. So I'm going to give that a B plus. It makes me think, though, Matt, other, other ventures like this that would be good. I mean, we've got Twitter. How about Trumper? You know, there could right. be a, yeah, just an, and that could compete with Twitter and everyone who was on Trumper. Right. You know, could Trump, uh, uh, the same Trumps, uh, and, and you'd have uh, uh, tweets on Twitter. I, I, I do think the whole thing could. <laughs> I, I had that thought. There's, I mean, there's Parler out there, which is supposed to be this kind of conservative free speech zone Twitter imitator. And I thought, you know, what if he buys some equity in that, yeah. right? And then he takes all his followers over there, obviously massive expansion of their number of users. You're right. I hadn't thought about changing it to Trumper. I mean, that's it's obvious. You'd have to do that. But yeah, that's, that's another possibility. Uh, you know, that can be kind of a branch off this tree. I got another one kind of along these lines to, to test out on you. Kind of go back to where he was pre-presidency, but you know, expanding the brand, put his name on every building, golf course, and hotel in sight. This is like, this would be the Trump revenge tour, right? Where he just you're buying up naming rights to everything. So there's no escape. Trump is everywhere you turn. And of course, you have to do it in all the major cities, as many, as many buildings as you can find. Certainly would be a nuisance to the anti-Trumpers. I'm not going to give it an A though. I'm going to give it more like a C because it's, it's a little bit like, it's a little too 80s Trump rather than <laughs> okay. 2020s Trump. So I think he moves forward okay. rather than backward uh, in his um, uh, remaking of uh, everything so that we we view things with his, his name there. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to give that one a, a B. I, there's, there's part of me that would enjoy seeing those signs. So third option, Republican King or Kingmaker get ready for 2024, 28, either him or Don Jr. Does he stay active in politics? Does he try to run again? Does he try to stay um, as, as the de facto leader of the Republican Party going into the next primary cycle. So this has happened, what, once in American history where you'd had a uh, four-year term lost and then won again, correct? Grover Cleveland, right. Okay. I could, I could really see him just 
getting ready uh, for 2024. I think he very much enjoys the rallies. I think he very much enjoys uh, what he thinks is his imprint, um, what has been a, a very powerful imprint upon American politics. So I think that too will will be an A. I think he's 74 years old. So, I mean, uh, Vice President Joe Biden, 77. So, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I could see him very well doing that and kind of keeping in, in the fray. Well, who would primary against him is a good question. I, I, you may have like a Mitt Romney that would do that, but uh, I, I really don't think that, that Mitt Romney could even come close to, to taking down Trump in a primary. So I, I, I think that may be a lost cause. Yeah, yeah, that'd be very interesting. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give that a C because I really don't want that to happen. <laughs> I, I want to I post-Trump GOP. So uh, I think it's very possible that he will go in that direction, but... Or, or the winsome Trump option. Yeah, the, the winsome Trump, yeah. That would be interesting. I don't know that I can imagine that exactly. Last option, what I'm going to call the Warren Zevon plan. Know famous where you're going song. with this. That's yeah, right. well, you know, it's famous song, Lawyers, Guns, and Money. I'm, I'm, I'm going to tweet that a little bit. Lawyers, Golf, and Money. Basically, the plan is stay out of jail, play lots of golf, and avoid taxes as much as possible. Wow. I'll let you grade that one. I, I, <laughs> you made it up. Um, yeah. that's. Uh, I think that's going to have to be at least part of the plan. Okay. I don't think the Southern District of New York federal prosecutor there is just going to give up on some of the investigations that have been underway over these last few years, just because President Trump is out of office. So I think there may be need for plenty of lawyers I think he'll probably want to get back to business, didn't entirely give up family company. And, and of course, we know he, he loves his golf and he seems to get a lot of celebrities to play golf with him. So I think that's part of any package here. So I'm going to give that one an A, at least as the, as the, as the most likely baseline for what the new life post-presidency looks like for the president. We turn at last to de Tocqueville's crystal ball. And thankfully we're spared maybe the worst of the recriminations on this by the fact that we don't have final numbers yet. So, you know, President Trump is holding out on that. We're holding out on that as prognosticators. I think we know pretty clearly that I got Ohio and Florida wrong and you got those right. And I think it's pretty clear we both got Iowa right. And I got Minnesota right. You were wrong there. Wisconsin, maybe that's still up in the air. Handful of others up in the air. So we'll, we'll get back to you on that. I think in every state I got wrong, there was something going wrong behind the scenes. That's <laughs> yeah. I want to say that right now. Right. That my call was exactly right. And when every legal vote is counted, it's going to come out exactly as I said it was, even if that meant Minnesota had to flip by 300,000 votes. Yeah, I don't don't really care that much about who's the president. I just want to be right when it comes to my predictions. Yeah, I'm going to press for recounts, even if no one else does. Well, we're going to go back to sports this week. (laughs) Just spare ourselves a little bit of the politics. Just a reminder, uh, cumulative record so far in our five sports picks I'm 21 and 14, Dave, you're 12 and 23. So still plenty of room to grow there. We've got two college football picks, two NFL picks, and then a special number five. So number one, number 23, Michigan, coming off an embarrassing loss to Michigan State 
is still a three-point favorite on the road against number 15, Indiana, the team that knocked off Penn State a couple weeks ago. So Michigan, three-point favorite at Indiana. What do you say, Dave? I'm going to take Indiana here. I think that I think that they will. Uh, they won't need the three points. They'll they'll win outright. But uh, yeah, that this may be their their year within the Big Ten. Well, year up until when they have to play Ohio State. Yeah, so right. This. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's going to be Indiana. As a as a Penn State fan, I guess I was impressed by their ability to win that game. Although Penn State really, in some ways, lost the game more than Indiana won it. But still, it was a good good win for them. And I think, you know, Michigan, is this the year Jim Harbaugh finally has his comeuppance? I think it's possible. A loss at Indiana would probably do it for him. They maybe won't fire him, but we'd have some mutual understanding that maybe it's time to go if they lose to Ohio State by three touchdowns, as we'd all expect. So I'm kind of rooting for that. And so I'm going to pick Indiana here. Number two, we've got number one Clemson without Trevor Lawrence at number four, Notre Dame. Clemson's still a five-point favorite. People love Clemson. Can they, can they do better than last week where BC almost took them down? It's a crazy game. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and, and I saw BC up late. Um, I, I don't think they can two weeks in a row. I think this is, uh, uh, this is going to be a real uh, great game for Notre Dame. I think that uh, they're going to be pumped up there and – Every Notre Dame supporter around the country, and there are many, are going to be happy with a Notre Dame victory over Clemson. Yeah, that would be a, a very popular result. I'm going to stick with Clemson, though. I think if you give Dabo a week with this backup quarterback, a full week to game plan prepare, I think they'd, they they pull it out. Um, Five-point spread, I wish I weren't giving five points. But, you know, a touchdown victory will be enough. I don't think it's going to be a blowout for sure. But I think the defense will be a little bit better. They found their footing the second half against BC, didn't give up any points. And the offense did enough in the end. I think with a full week to prepare, Clemson can, can squeak this out. I think Notre Dame might be a little bit overrated. But this is the toughest challenge probably they've had in the regular season in five or six years. Number three, our NFC East, NFC least matchup of the week. When are we going to start calling this the Trevor Lawrence Bowl? We got the New York Giants at the Washington football team, one and seven at two and five. Two terrible offenses, two barely passable defenses, all the trappings of a classic. Washington is the favorite at home by three points. Going to go with the Washington football team. I think they they have this one. They're just a little bit better than the Giants, and I think we'll take it. Yeah, I agree. I'm going to take Washington also. I'm. As I said a couple weeks ago, I'm going for the home team in all these because that's the way to, I think, create the worst possible outcome where like a five or six win team wins the division. So I just want the home team to win all the divisional games and then they'll lose all the other ones and it'll just be this, this utter embarrassment. So Washington football team, I think, takes this by eh, maybe four, five, six points. Not going to be much, but 16 to 10 could be a real fun game to watch. Number four. Got to go back to the well. New Orleans Saints at the Tampa Bay Bucks. Remember the first game, Saints won 34-23. Tom Brady's first game as a Buck, two interceptions, not a great start. Definitely didn't seem like he was in sync with his offense at that stage. But it's been a few weeks, and they're clicking. 
looking pretty well. It's going to have a pretty uh, good receiver playing for him again this week, um, Antonio Brown. So I, I think I'm going to take the Bucks here. Uh, Brady's on a roll. I haven't quite gotten to that point, Matt, where I'm rooting for Brady and Gronkowski and the Buccaneers. <laughs> I'm getting close, but I have to bite my tongue because yeah. um, my wife and I have disagreed as to who was most essential to the Patriots' success, and I was on that Belichick frame of mind okay. all summer. Yeah, I've been proven to be wrong here, at least for for this year. But um, anyway, yeah, I, I'm going to take the Bucks here. I, I think they're on a little bit of a roll. Yeah, they are, and and this is a huge game because it's six and two Tampa and five and two New Orleans. Whoever wins is going to have a full game advantage in the division and of course if new orleans were to win they'd have the tiebreaker on the bucks moving ahead so that would be decisive perhaps at the end of the season so i think this is a game that tampa bay has to win at home brady with with all his weapons available i don't want to go against him even four and a half points i think they're able to to take this and maybe by by two touchdowns i wouldn't be surprised if it's a if it's a significant win for tampa bay Okay, number five, we promised some obscure sports or some at least sports that we're not as likely to watch or be expert in for our number five pick. And we have this week, Breeders' Cup Classic. 14 big horse races this week as part of the Breeders' Cup. But the final race, the classic, unlike the Triple Crown races, not just open to three-year-olds. So you've got wide range of horses here. Dave, I know you follow horse racing very closely and you've probably got thoughts on all these horses but just to keep it to a reasonable length of time with the time that we have already expended on our discussion today who do you got we got 10 horses available we've got the winner of the kentucky derby winner of the belmont some four and five-year-olds with some pretty significant track records who's your favorite was it just surprised that Tacitus was still around, you know, and, and, and uh, given that I referenced Machiavelli, a different Tacitus, I, I'm going to go with Tacitus 20 to one odds. Oh, means if I put a dollar on it, I, I, I win $20 or something like that. So yeah, Tacitus for the win. It's a little bit of a longer shot, but yeah, 20 to one's not, not ridiculous. I'm sure he's got some successes in the past. So, all right, Tacitus, you know, there, there's a lot of fun names here. If you're just going by the names, of course, I've done a lot of research into the bloodlines of each of these horses and their various speed ratings and, and the track and distance and all that. That's that part of just my standard research whenever I'm handicapping a Breeders' Cup Classic. But the one that jumped out at me was Tom's d'etat, which seems like a, a little bit of a, a play on coup d'etat. And since we're talking about coups and we're talking about stolen elections, why not? Why Tom's not? For the Tom's data for the win. Six to one. So okay. seems like a solid choice. I'm going to pick, take Tom's data and we'll see how it comes out. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this week's show. Thank you as always for listening. Please remember to subscribe and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And we'll look forward to talking to you next week.